Welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel. I'm Ben Simon. I'm Jesse Spur. I'm Jess Stokes Parish, and you're listening to Simulcast. Connecting the healthcare simulation community. So, welcome to Simulcast. This is the May Simulcast Journal Club. I'm Victoria Brazel, and I'm joined again by Ben Simon. How are you, Ben? I am very well. Looking forward to tonight. We've got a good mix of papers. We do, and we are fortunate tonight to also be joined by Jess Stokes Parish. How are you, Jess? I'm good. Very grateful to be in your esteemed presence. You know, you're welcome any month at all. <laughs> uh, but yes, we're very pleased we could somehow line up our busy schedules so that we could do this. Uh, indeed, as Ben said, we've got a very interesting mix of articles, quite diverse, uh, and we're going to go through four of those. And we're going to, but before we do that, a little bit of an announcement for those who are interested and in Australia or New Zealand, you might like to come along on Wednesday, the 16th of November. We're having a simulation event for reconnecting our sim community at uh, Bond University. So on the Simulcast website, shortly we will be putting out some date claimers and some flyers, but uh, we would really love to see many of our sim community there. All right, so Jess, you are going to kick us off, I believe, on a paper about simulated patients, but not as you know them. Yes, so uh, I stumbled across this paper as I was searching the literature for evidence on SIM participants in the hospital setting. And so I came across this and it really piqued my interest. It's called Simulated Patients and Their Reality, an Inquiry into Theory and Method. Now, the paper is in a totally left-of-field journal from my perspective. It's um, in a journal called Social Science and Medicine. And the first author is a Professor Vina Das of John Hopkins University. And there's a number of other colleagues in there from Canada and India. Um, Professor Das is a professor of anthropology and holds honorary doctorates from the University of Bern and Durham University. Um, and I'll just try and summarize it. I've written down notes because it was kind of a bit tricky to get my head around what this paper was about. And I was sitting there with my bias of what I think simulated participants are, and I had to kind of get my head around it. So they were exploring SPs in the quality improvement setting. And the paper is about, now I use their words, not mine. So Deborah Nestel, don't come for me. Um, using SPs as measurement methods as opposed to an educational tool. So they actually describe SPs as a quality improvement tool proxy for real patients and how providers might provide care. So in terms of the content for the paper, it, it was a pilot study and a very conceptual piece and they started off with a lot of theoretical discussions that I recognised from our colleagues over in the serious gaming and war gaming um, space where they talk about simulations as being grounded in this idea of comparing real and the simulated but this idea of possibility through actuality. So very abstract thinking and kind of nerding out there. Anyway, so they wanted to see whether these scenarios if they were sequential. So instead of a one-off simulation, they wanted to work out whether sequential simulations that were about a journey of care for the patient would impact on the provider's interactions and whether they would advance care um, more quickly or, or differently. 
So it was narrative study. There was no statistical analysis. It was very much an anthropological perspective, but it did provide some interesting things. Um, So they had 16 practitioners participate. They were both um, general practitioners or physicians and also alternative therapists like homeopaths and so on, and they were trying to work out whether they could define what the patient's health complaint was. So these SPs had tuberculosis and they were recurrently presenting to the health provider with recurrent symptoms, worsening symptoms and progression of their disease. Now, there's nothing particularly novel in my mind about the simulation itself. I think it's pretty easily arguable that most people participating in a simulation can suspend disbelief and believe the history. They were kind of suggesting that, you know, having a sequential scenario might be difficult to believe, but I don't really um, back that from my observations and, and I haven't certainly seen that as an issue. Um But in terms of their results, they concluded that SPs could help with um, quality improvement in terms of continuity of care in systems and that the only way that the health providers would order an X-ray or progress the care was when the patients repeatedly prompted a certain cue and I think it was like only two of them that actually escalated care. Um. Other kind of interesting things for me was realism. They made a lot of assertions about realism and that realism was supposedly argued as the central component of simulations. And while I guess we can say that there are a lot of people that think that, I think we know a lot more about simulation and authenticity now than needing to believe that. Uh, And interestingly, The issue with SPs was, from their perspective, was that they're too standardised or too medicalised and that their authenticity could be enhanced by less perfection, uh, which I thought was probably also not too dissimilar to what we've seen in our field. Um, I think it was really interesting that it was with a different demographic of health professionals in India and I think it highlights some of the viewpoints that we might miss when we have Western-centric perspectives about our simulations. Um, So, yeah, so there was lots of interesting things that really piqued my thoughts in terms of the conceptual ideas and the way they thought about simulation, the methodology and the results weren't so interesting to me, but I'm really keen to hear what your thoughts were, Vic and Ben. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I think for me it was just the very fundamental basis of why have a simulated patient and it's not, as you say, for educational purpose, these were essentially mystery shoppers that came in uh, who presented themselves to these practitioners and asked to be treated and then it was used as a measure of the quality of care or testing the process or seeing if different presentations of that patient led to different practitioner choices and care. And I guess that's just very far removed from my experience of working with SPs. So uh, uh, it is fascinating. Um, and, I mean, I have heard about these mystery shopper type uh, concepts, but they usually, I, I thought, about patient satisfaction and stuff like that, not necessarily probing into the quality of care. So I guess the idea for me was was very interesting. Uh, yeah, I got lost in some of the uh, theory stuff that piqued your interest, I have to admit. What about you, Ben? 
Well, this is really interesting because I almost feel like I was reading a different paper. And I think it was because, I think it was because you shared this on our little simulcast WhatsApp group with what do you guys think of this? So I kind of went in with this very relaxed kind of attitude of just reading it and not feeling like I needed to heavily critique it per se. But I think for me, I actually really enjoyed just reading a paper that was clearly from a very different cultural lens to my own and feeling myself challenged by that along the way. So I was kind of trying to mindfully go, well, this is not how I would see uh, a simulationist relationship with a, an SP, for example, and sort of uncomfortable with that sort of almost like SP as an automated machine that can be plugged in to achieve something type feel. But I also went, well, this is very different culture. I'm going to just try and keep my mind open a little bit. And for me, I got much more intrigued by some of the conclusions about um, what they found culturally. And uh, so for me, it was really about the information that they found that um, just how poorly some of their healthcare providers listen, uh, which I don't think is isolated to India. Um, and I found that like I, the fact that they talked about how to empower patients to proactively improve their assessments through advocacy and potentially using research to find specific lines of questioning uh, and feedback that might actually activate a pathway with a healthcare provider as simultaneously really depressing that we'd have to do that, but also a really interesting line of inquiry in terms of patient advocacy. Um, and I think, you know, it would be easy to sort of sit back and go, well, this isn't how our healthcare system works. But I think if we're honest, we've been training medical trainees and nurses for decades to subtly manipulate doctors through conversation without upsetting their egos. And actually, I found it quite refreshing to explore that in a very different way. Uh, so I was intrigued by the ideas that came out. Yeah, look, I think um, I really loved the idea of SPs um, contributing to that quality improvement cycle more deliberately. And I think that is something that we have underexplored to some extent. And, and like I said, I guess at the beginning, I was looking for work on SPs in the healthcare setting. And so much of our research is focused on that translational, um, sorry, not the translational, the uh, tertiary setting. And my thinking is we probably could be exploring SPs as a more deliberate methodology to work with in conjunction with translational simulation design. Mm, yes, and uh, being on the edge of that research work, uh, I think it has raised questions for me about the simulated patients that we work with within our quality improvement approaches, and I'm thinking about some we've done recently in mental health um, and other places and the role that the portrayal plays in what we uncover and find, and I'm going to think a little bit more about it. Uh, and I think, Ben, your point is very good. Um, but I think you also mean culturally as in the broad sense. I mean, I think you've got, as you said, the culture that is either an Indian culture and the interactions and the way that is, but also I think the culture of how we interact with SPs as educators is probably equally as um, uh, different to at least my experience. Yeah. All right, Jess, what's your take home then? Keep looking outside the box for ideas. <laughs> um, but I think for me it's that, you, you know, there are ways of doing things with our simulation design that can 
evoke elements of reality, um, but that we also shouldn't consider that our participants are incapable of suspending disbelief. All right. I love that. That's a very nice little pricey. Thank you, Jess. We'll invite you back. <laughs> All right, Ben, you better take us on a, another divergent path thinking about forum theatre. Absolutely. Although I do think there is a reasonable segue here in terms of the role of the SP and uh, not necessarily diagnosing, but generating shared understanding of uh, healthcare experiences between uh, patient and doctor. So this title, uh, this article is entitled From Spectating to Spect Acting, Medical Students' Lived Experiences of Online Forum Theatre, Training in Consulting with Domestic Abuse Victims. And it was by uh, Dan McGrath et al. and published in Advances in Simulation. And so this is a qualitative study exploring participants' lived experiences in an interactive online simulation where 11 med students in separate groups of three or four watched a virtual GP consultation with essentially an SP or actor who was playing the part of a domestic abuse victim. But then the participants had the opportunity to rewind that event and replay it with opportunities for the passive observers to then switch to being active participants, either by role-playing themselves or trying or prompting the actors to use alternative conversational approaches and then seeing those impacts uh, uh, play out in real time with the uh, SP. So the article starts by highlighting, you know, some statistical data surrounding the harsh realities of domestic abuse's presence in our society. They quote that about 27% of women between 15 to 40 have been in a relationship with some physical or sexual violence from their partner and highlight the increase of that during the COVID pandemic due to home isolation. So this is clearly a big thing that we need to be training in. And the authors argue that most domestic violence training is really quite intellectual rather than experiential and that there can be a disconnect then between what is learned in intellectual learning and how we might actually act when we engage with someone in practice. And so how they highlight this new idea of forum theatre. And this is an interesting idea for me that was certainly completely new. So I do want to drill down a bit here and explain it for our listeners. So it originates from a theory and book entitled Theatre of the Oppressed, in which the author Augusto Boal highlights the barriers that exist between actors and the audience in traditional theatre. And so he proposes an alternative form where participants watch a scene, uh, see how it plays out, and then join in as actors or coaches to change the events that occur on stage. And so adapting this concept to medical education, the authors crafted a simulated consult based on sort of a uh, pastiche of a range of first-hand accounts from individuals who have been subjected to domestic abuse. And then it was storyboarded out with a team and then revised iteratively with consultation from professionals who care for domestic abuse victims and then rehearsed by senior drama students and one of the GPs in the research team who role-played the GP. So then uh, 11 of these third and fourth year medical students attended the theatre in groups of three to four. And then after that experience, they ran some semi-structured interviews. And, and one interesting thing for me was that the participants were asked to draw a picture that symbolised their experience of the activity. And I hadn't seen this before in qualitative research. I don't know if you guys have seen this more commonly. Uh, so those pictures were then used as a conversational prompt during the qualitative inter interview, which I found quite interesting. Uh, so they found five themes through their analysis, uh, none of which are kind of crazy surprising. So almost being there, but not quite, which was essentially saying this was a realistic experience, that they were taken on an emotional journey, 
that there was a sense of opening and controlling a privileged space and the generation of understanding that small things matter when cultivating and maintaining rapport and then some critical reflection on one's future professional self. And look, I guess from that kind of experience, the findings aren't too surprising to me, but much like many qualitative studies, the paper really provides a beautiful synthesis of those concepts that I think are hard to measure in any other way and clearly have merit in describing. But I felt like there weren't any big shockers here in the findings. What did you guys think? Yes, very interesting indeed. And uh, I liked those introductory comments, and I think they apply far more broadly about how so much of our training is intellectual and then we feel this big leap to the experiential and I think we could apply that to a lot more things than uh, domestic abuse um, situations and learning how to be a consultation. And I think this learning and acting thing is important and I I forget who the quote was from but um, it was something along the lines of acting yourself into new ways of thinking is probably much easier than thinking yourself into new ways of acting. Uh, So you kind of get transformed through doing rather than the other way around. So I think um, at a conceptual level, it's quite good. The the, uh, interesting thing for me was I, I couldn't imagine how I would do this. And I think that's mainly the limitation of this. I just feel like those medical students are so lucky at Queen's University Belfast because they've got this fantastic collaboration between their theatre and drama group and their medical school and they get to do this very interesting stuff. Um, but I, I don't know how most of us mere mortals would manage to uh, translate this because I would also think you could get it wrong too. Yeah, I um I really loved their study design and I loved the qualitative methods that they used. It was really interesting to me, really expressive, and I thought the use of the visual drawing was really nice. Um, I did wonder about the safety elements and, you know, the, that re-traumatisation for staff to be rolling out if you were rolling it out en masse um, and, you know, what kind of wellbeing supports would there be available in a practical sense for, you know, 200 students at a time going through it? Uh, and I did also wonder, you know, about the patient's lived experience once the scenario was designed and, and once it was portrayed, and I wonder how you might embed that perspective throughout the process Um, but also at the same time knowing that, you know, often with people that have gone through traumatic experiences, we, we relive their, they relive their trauma every time that we ask them to tell their story and to verify that this is accurate, much the same that we do with other circumstances, such as, you know, First Nations trauma and so on. No, agreed. I think, uh, this was a really lovely demonstration of, um, how to do it with nuance uh, um, and a lot of considered thought. And it did sort of similarly with you, uh, Vic, I did sort of get that feeling of, oh, this could go really badly if if somebody who was super enthusiastic but not necessarily as considered took the reins. Um, I was really lucky reading this article because just before um, I read it, we sort of did this at an APLS course last week, not about um, something quite so challenging but about... Um, giving peer feedback conversations in an educational setting. And the group had hired two really exceptionally good uh, actresses who and had written a very nice 
case of uh, a um, instructor candidate who's being a bit challenging but with adequate exploration has some very understandable frames and it really avoided sort of descending into stereotypes and stuff like that. But um, And I found it really, really valuable. So we, we replayed that feedback conversation about four or five times with different um, instructors trying out different strategies and uh, some of the difficult debriefing toolbox that uh, Vince wrote. Um, and it was really, really useful. But, yeah, I went, oh, what a powerful technique, but not for the faint-hearted or the unconsciously incompetent either. Still, I feel like that story of yours is gratifying, Ben, because it does mean that uh, you could start somewhere other than with very high-octane content and uh, see how the format developed and developed some skills. And I think the other thing is as QUB show us is find some friends who do have some of those skill sets, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is a great strategy for teaching those nuanced things that are hard to teach in other ways, like the impact of small changes in your body language to establish rapport. What intrigues me a little bit is how do you plan for that in advance if you've got an unpredictable uh, group of people who might fiddle with those dials in unexpected ways? uh, And how do you train or prepare the person who's uh, acting to actually respond to that uh, in a way that's believable and authentic. It's pretty tricky. I'm also, it's just coming to me as well that I wonder if the fact that it was virtual actually contributed to the psychological safety that was present because I think it would be a totally different experience if you were all in the same room in that pressure cooker. There's almost like that, maybe some sort of comfort about the virtual space. I don't know. Yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. That struck me when I first for that heated a topic actually that little bit of distance is probably quite nice and the participants felt that it replicated how common their virtual consults were as well in a gp setting so did it fit mm-hmm. workers done as well all right very good well are we ready to go from hermeneutic phenomenology to the statistics of learning curves All right, so I'm going to be talking about a paper from Simulation in Healthcare entitled Learning Curves in Health Professions Education Simulation Research, a Systematic Review. This is by Howard Cook, Hatala and Pusik, who are fairly well-known names in the simulation systematic review uh, world. And to introduce this idea, look, I think at a very basic level, the concept of learning curves are relatively easy to understand. Along the x-axis, you have some measure of effort, uh, your practice, whether it's volume or time of how much work you're doing training in something. And then along the y-axis, you have your performance, whether that's speed or safety or something else. Uh, and it has various uses in simulation, as we've seen. Uh, sometimes we use sim to actually develop and describe a learning curve because we can present people with very standardized challenges co- so we can see how good they are and then we can see how that changes uh, if they come every week to do training, for instance. Uh, but we also see it used in sim to see how that might influence the impact of an intervention. So There is a standard learning curve, shall we say, just through your clinical exposure over a year. But if you also come to the sim lab once a week, maybe your learning curve is then accelerated. And as they say here, there's an important nuance. It can describe differences in learning rate, which is better than just do you, are you better over time? Because we know that people tend to get better over time because of their other influences. Now, 
I think that's about what I understood about learning curves. But after reading this paper, I've discovered that they're not so simple when it comes to a more granular level of detail. It turns out that the choices people make about the statistical analyses, the choice of performance measures, and the way that uh, these things are presented in, in visually actually is hugely important if you're really trying to understand learning curves. So this article is a systematic review of the use and the reporting of learning curves in simulation-based interventions uh, over a period up to about 2011 and then over the year of 2016. And I'll tell you why I put it in, because this is from 2020, and that is because the Key Lyme podcast, Key Literature and Medical Education, those wonderful Canadians reviewed it and said it was a must-have, but they wondered and they didn't think that it really should have just been in simulation. So I thought, too bad. Simulcast will do it then because it is in simulation. Uh, and if you really want to hear a very rigorous review, maybe listen to their podcast. But I will give you the simple view from us. So as I said, this author group, um, particularly David Cook and Rose Hatala, have done a lot of systematic reviews in simulation-based intervention. And in fact, the data for this study was drawn for that big systematic review that they did that was published in 2011 about simulation-based interventions. Uh, they describe in here their systematic review, um, PRISMA guidelines, process, and then they talk about how they found their studies and then they matched each study with certain elements. So was the curve well described in terms of the variance between different um, practitioners, the spacing of practice, individual versus group um, curves, and things like competency thresholds that were graphed. Also, one of the interesting things is, did they graph a forgetting curve, which I found was quite good, because we all know that there's one of those too, and that we get worse over time sometimes if we don't practice. So the, uh, and they just show that in the paper in some detail. So they ended up with 230 articles, unsurprisingly, 206 of those related to psychomotor procedures, which, again, I'm not too dis, um, surprised about because this is something that's relatively easy to measure and getting easier with all the fancy technology we have. We can see how far you move your hand when you're trying to do a laryngoscopy and we can see how smooth uh, that movement is uh, due to technology we have now. And uh, then they basically looked at how good was the reporting of these learning curves. And the short answer is it was variable. Some were very good. Um, mostly people graphed their X and Y axes well. Um, only 67% though had what they called a statistical linking function, which is essentially the mathematical equation that describes the shape of this learning curve. Uh, Fewer of the papers reported things like a mastery threshold or, as they described it, a remediation line, which means if you drop below it, maybe you should have uh, more training. So their conclusion was that there was room for improvement. Um, and uh, my conclusion was reading that, that you need considerable expertise in statistics to go thinking about doing learning curves research. And I think when I look at their so what, uh, really what they've come up with here is proposed best practices for reporting learning curves, and that's probably very important. Uh, they then, and I'm going to quote here, for sim education practice, they would like us to use this to improve instructional design and argue that learning curves should be central to sim design rather than an add-on or an afterthought. It shouldn't be that, hey, I did this great procedural skills program and now I'm going to measure the learning curves to prove it was so good but rather instead the learning curve should be central to it. So uh, I would have to agree. I think it is incredibly well done. 
I think it's only going to probably be directly applicable to the people who've got the kind of um, expertise and size of program that can look at this kind of research. But if they are, there's some guidance here about how to do it. Yeah, um, very much outside of my sphere of thinking or fields of research within simulation. So super niche kind of topic. And yeah, it makes sense. And I have glossed over some of those uh, learning curve elements that are important. But as I read them, they were quite easy to understand, I think, for the average person. But I think to go through them all in the podcast might be uh, a little bit unnecessary, but they have really nicely laid that out. Uh, ben, thoughts? Yeah, I thought they could have just changed the title to You All Suck at Learning Curves, and it would have kind of <laughs> summarized <laughs> the office frame uh, accurately, but Knight might have got published in Simulation in Healthcare. Uh, <laughs> But it was I. Um, it felt like a really Vic paper for you to choose, actually, because uh, what I love when you like pick a paper about something that I never would have thought of that opens up all of these blind spots that I've never considered, and then you just see the depth of knowledge that's actually out there that uh, sh- you know ideally should be incorporated into that skill that I then eventually realize I've either been doing not at all or very poorly in the past. And so I, yeah, I didn't find it the easiest paper to read. I, I agree. It's a very specific subsection of knowledge. Uh, and ironically, I think reading it was a fairly steep learning curve for me. If you've never sort of heard of some of these concepts before, I do feel like for this paper, it would potentially have more impact if there is a, Uh, alternative translation strategy to translating some of these concepts more to people for whom they'll be very new, like me. Uh, Sounds like some of that's being done by Keyline Podcasts, so that's good. Um, But I think, yeah, uh, yeah, obviously a lot of expertise and just sort of uh, an impressive smackdown of knowledge about something that they have evidence we're not doing very well. Yeah, absolutely. And look, I think you're right. And I I think this comes to the inherent limitations of how we write up research because this is obviously so well done and follows a systematic review format. But I would have loved a bunch of little vignettes that illustrated it. So, you know, Jack is learning to intubate. He's at the beginning of his learning curve. He comes to this once a week. Here's how we measure his improvement. And then I think some of these descriptions would make more sense if we had some little stories associated with them, or at least they would to me. But I know that that's not the genre that this is published in, but I think it might help. What I would like to see, and I'm very influenced by the last author of this, Martin Pusick, is to see some patient-centered performance data on the y-axis. A lot of these are about the skills of the provider, but if you think about some of the ones I've seen, uh, things like bile duct injury and the lower that is being the measure of the performance of your ability to do a laparoscopic cholecystectomy, I feel like that's it. Now, and the reason Martin Pusick is relevant is because I did a podcast with him for the other podcast I do and he's right into big data with the idea that you would get this stuff collected from your clinical practice as a way of feeding in and informing your personal learning curve and seeing where you are at so quite interesting all right enough on me for learning curves can we do lego now please yes sounds good (laughs) so this is from uh our newest simulation journal the international journal of healthcare simulation it's a letter to the editor and it's titled the use of lego bricks to train novice debriefers and this is from an italian group uh capogna and team and uh 
We've got a little bit of gossip to talk about with this one because it's made us wonder who is at Simbricks on Twitter. And we wonder whether it's this team because of the Lego Association. Uh, but I'll talk about their what they've actually done and what they describe in their letter to the editor. They essentially say they use Lego Serious Play to train their debriefers. And this probably isn't that novel a concept, but taking a non-clinical task for a group as the performance that debriefers can practice their skills with. So it sounds like they're in their faculty development workshops, they get a group together, they ask them to build some Lego, and then the people who are the trainee facilitators can practice their debriefing with a focus on the structure and their debriefing skills and some of the teamwork concepts without being distracted by the clinical elements of the task. And uh, Ben, I imagine you've done, maybe not with Lego, but similar things where you practice debriefing with sort of non-clinical activities. Yeah, well, we, I have sort of tried with Lego, not not debriefing, but um, per se, but like group icebreaker activities that we then discuss and deconstruct as a group. Yeah. People don't get bound up in the identity threat that maybe they might do if they have to intubate someone. Jess, have you done this kind of thing? No, but I'm a huge sucker for tactile things in learning and, you know, the the mindfulness as well as the playfulness and I have been known to pull out the Play-Doh and the drawing and all of those things. So I'm a fan. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, One little interesting thing that I got out of this uh, letter to the editor was they did give a little bit of background about this idea about Lego serious play, which I had not done this deep dive into. And I read one of their references. Turns out Lego serious play was invented about 25 years ago. um, And they had the two fellows, Roos and Victor, uh, who wrote an article 20 years after they'd started it, uh, which in which they described that this was actually a way of exploring strategy for managers at Lego. They had all the Lego bricks around, uh, but they didn't actually play with them. And instead they said, well, we want you to try and explain concepts to each other using the Lego bricks. And if you've got new ideas, try and work them through with the Lego. And it turns out to be a huge success. And then, of course, they expanded into other business and management strategies. So that was very uh, interesting for me. Uh, but it does make me wonder, who is at Simbricks? Jess, what do you think? Well, look, I, just a slight correction on the handle because at Simbricks is some random dude. Um, oh. It's at Sim underscore Brick. Uh, so thank so you. don't get distracted by that because there okay. is a very strange page, the other one. Uh, okay. Stumble down Sim that underscore well. Brick. <laughs> yep. And well, so this, I, is a, this is a handle that burst onto the scene yeah. six months or so ago, yes? Yeah, last year sometime, and they started trying to kind of share messages about simulation with little Lego figurines, and none of us know who it is. Well, I mean, yeah. I can speak for myself. I don't know who it is. I think it's somebody in Europe. I've been tagged on it. The podcast yeah. has been tagged on it. Yeah, and we've it's had a cool little simulcast nod. Thank you. Very impressive Lego designs. <laughs> I know they are. We've yes. Like I want to know the detail. Do they have all of this gear sitting in the the office that they put together, or are there some stock photos somewhere? I know because the one we had of Simulcast actually had us at a little microphone, or me, I think it was, and it actually had a picture of Australia up on the wall. Yeah, like. Maybe it is these Italian people. 
I don't know. I wrote to them on Twitter to see if we could out them, and I thought the conjecture was worthwhile. What do you think, Ben? What's a, where's your money on for at sim underscore brick? Or it could be like uh, you know the end of uh, you know at the end of Scream how there turns out to be like two murderers under the same alias and mask. We could have that kind of situation. So I'm not putting it against some kind of transcontinental conspiracy that's being deliberately yeah. misleading. And, and they also they also highlight um, TikTok star Glockenflecken. So you know we're going broad here. Well, I thought it might have been Jerry because they say where they're from is uh, the simulacrum, and as we know, he uh, wrote that article. So I did wonder whether it was someone in the Queen's University Belfast group. So at sim underscore bricks, if you're listening, no, we are intrigued. And I think you should leave a series of slightly misleading but intriguing clues to help us, just to be clear. <laughs> it would be a great treasure hunt. Can I, can I get back to the yes. article there briefly? Of course you can, Ben, yes. But I do think there's tension here between the potential to, like, help Jermaine learning by abstracting a task and then potentially negatively impacting that learning by adding essentially seductive details. And I don't know about you guys, but if there's going to be one thing that's going to distract me from the actual point of an exercise, it's going to be giving me plastic bricks to play with in a social setting. Uh, and I've certainly tried this where I got a Lego hospital that I really wanted to tax deduct that I'd got for my son and got people to like arrange an environment and a team in ways that demonstrated like good and bad teams and then we tried to debrief it and it was fun but it wasn't very efficient and for me actually the wins in engagement were kind of offset by the pedagogical inefficiency um and i Mm. do also think that if you need if you're going to do this a bit like um playing Keep Talking and Nobody Explodes, which you've uh, shown how to do that Mm. really well, Vic. I think as facilitators, we need to be mindful of it, really explicitly help participants draw the connections between the abstract and their work has done. Yes, and I think that is uh, a timely reminder, Ben. Thank you. Happy to be of service. All right. Well, with that simulcast team, we had better finish off the May General Club. Uh, But, yeah, something for everyone here a broad range of papers delving from thinking about the role of simulated patients in helping us with our quality improvement, thinking about uh, forum theatre and how we might train medical students to uh, care for patients who've been uh, who've suffered domestic abuse, a little bit of fun with Lego and even more fun with learning curves, dare I say it. So it's Victoria Brazel, Jess Stokes Parish, and Ben Simon signing off for Simulcast. And I do think it will be useful quantitative data for us to work out if uh, hashtag who is Simbrick is uh, trending on Twitter oh. in the next week. Oh, all right. It's a challenge. Let's go. <laughs> thanks, Vic and Ben. Yeah, thanks for coming. Thank you for listening to Simulcast. <laughs>